From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house. He is locked in the cell of a novice in the Dominican <laughs> order, uh, and we're, we're not sure when he'll be released. We're negotiating with uh, the provincial as we speak, and uh, hopefully we'll get him out of there shortly. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email, open line at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, and Jeff Burson handles our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Milady. Is that where you were a novice at the facility you're currently at? No, we were sent to Ohio. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Good. Oakland would have been nicer, probably, uh, depending yes. upon the, the time of year. So tomorrow, big feast, huh? Yeah, it's the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, this feast, of course, is very important, period. But it's also important when you consider the whole idea of mercy of Pope Francis. And its origin really is interesting. I mean, of course, we've always had the idea of the Sacred Heart, Christ's heart wounded on the cross, pierced, uh, and blood and water flowing out as the origin of the sacraments and also the origin of the church. There's one of the fathers that says this, Eve, the first virgin bride, was born from the side of the sleeping Adam. So, Holy Mother of the Church, as another virginal bride, was born from the side of the dead Christ. In the old office, and I believe still the Mass for the Sacred Heart, it speaks of his heart as being the origin of all of his thoughts, the thoughts of his heart, this is Psalm 33, stand from generation to generation that he might deliver their souls from death and nourish them in times of famine. The Sacred Heart also represents Christ's person and therefore his divinity. And Benedict XVI remarks, his divine heart calls to our hearts inviting to come out of ourselves to abandon our human certainties, to trust in him and following his example, to make of ourselves a gift of love without reserve. Now, what are the characteristics of the human nature of Christ the heart represents? One of the reasons the term heart is used 
is because the Jews, as you know, didn't have a hard and fast distinction between body and soul. I mean, some people hold that up as a red herring to say that they didn't, they were completely antithetic to what the Greeks thought about this. The Roman Athens were in disagreement about this. This is exactly true because there is a part of our soul, according to Aristotle and others, where our passions are also found. So the term heart summarizes not only your thinking about things, and Christ, of course, was in a tuning state of infused contemplation, a state of infused contemplation that he implemented through giving himself for love of us. And this not only was reflected in the reasoning part of his spirit, but also in his feelings. If you remember, Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. And one of their places says he rejoiced in the truth. So that the uh, passions are also a part of the way God re relates to man and invites us to conform not only our thinking, but also our willing. And even more than that, in a way, as human beings, our feelings or our passions, according to what divine and supernatural mode of thinking. This, of course, is represented principally by Christ's redemption, in which, as a sign of mercy, he reverses the unloving disobedience of Adam by dying on the cross through loving, and I always emphasize loving, obedience. And so when his heart from the cross, the dead Christ, is pierced by the side of the lands, the mercy with which each of us is invited to enter into communion with God on earth and to also experience him as an object of blessedness in heaven is unleashed on the world in the experience of the rituals of the seven sacraments. Blood representing the Eucharist and water representing the sacrament of baptism. And when I visited the Holy Land, I think I told this a couple of times, they took us to the place of Golgotha, and it really is a rock, and there are holes in the rock. And as they were piercing Christ's side, the blood and the water flowed down the cross into the holes in the rock and touched the waters of the world and gave them the power to heal. So in the last few feasts, we've been talking about Corpus Christi and the Trinity, all as exemplifying the Pentecost mystery. Now we come to the place where Christ's human heart becomes the model for ours. So sacred heart of Jesus, overflowing with love for mankind, wounded for love of me, heart overflowing with divine mercy, make our hearts like unto thine. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. Uh, we have an email from Jane, and she wants to know, how is Catholicism important for living the most fulfilling life possible? 
Catholicism is the true religion. It's the religion in which we are invited truly on earth to experience a communion after the heart of our Savior with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since the whole world was created from divine love, and since it finds its purpose finally in this union with God, but a union with God that demands us, because obviously the leaves and the plants and the trees, they don't pass beyond the material order, but they do in us. Because we not only have a body, but we also have a spirit. There was a famous line in the Middle Ages from a father of the church that a man stands in the middle of creation on the horizon of being between flesh and spirit, between time and eternity. So just as you look at the horizon and the top part is air and the bottom part is earth, so in our bodies we experience a kind of sentient consciousness which eventually, through the action of God, ends in ideas or in thoughts. And these thoughts themselves are spiritual and the willing that accompanies them through love is also spiritual. And therefore, while we're on earth, we're able to make sense out of why we're here. It's interesting that Aristotle begins his metaphysics the first line is, all men by nature desire to know. And so the only way we can make sense out of our world, as far as knowledge is concerned, is to realize that reason, which is authentic and, a, and participation in God's own thinking, but that reason ends in faith, which is also thinking, first of all, not just feelings, and that that itself has its purpose to end in God. So this is how Catholicism, which offers this to us as the sacraments, gives final taste and final meaning to the journey of our life. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Bruce in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we've got plenty of time for your phone calls on Open Line Thursday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Don't miss out on the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. And you can get The World Over in your email inbox every week. Just sign up today by visiting EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
833-288-3986. First up today is Bruce in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Bruce, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hello. Hello. I need to start I need to start by apologizing for not getting this question to you sooner because I know that as we get older, uh, the things we say sometimes slip out of our memories. Not that I'm accusing you of being old or anything. Um, but four weeks ago, you said something that totally baffled me, and so I'm hoping you'll be able to explain it. Go right ahead. So there was a, yeah, there was a caller who there was a caller who was asking about whether there will be pets in heaven. And here is what you answered. In heaven there is no sun or moon. The Lamb of God is its only light. Therefore, only human beings are in heaven. It yes. doesn't make a bit of sense to me. So the, the statement about the Lamb of God being its only light, I totally agree with. Right. Uh, therefore, only human beings So don't animals need some death. other light? Don't they need sunlight? Don't they need... Food? Don't they need uh, water? Don't they need those things? Uh, if they don't have any of those things, they unless they have a resurrected body, they they die. So it makes no sense because there's no natural movements in heaven. Because remember, all the natural movements cease when the number of the elect is filled up. And also, you can't oh, just okay. pick and choose. You can't just pick and choose your pets, you know. If you've got animals, you've got to have them all. So that includes the boa constrictors and the crocodiles and the, you know, the whole thing. So well, that's, I'm all right with that. God will protect me from them. <laughs> but, yeah, I understand your point now. That's your full answer. Thank you very much. Surely, God bless. You have to remember, we're dealing with a Dominican here, not a Franciscan. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Mary in Southern California, just below you there, Father, listening on John Paul the Great Radio. Mary, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Thank you. My question is regarding a book by Von Hildebrand called The Heart. And you were speaking about the Sacred Heart, and in his book, he lays out a type of uh, proposition where the heart is uh, goes beyond a symbol and is deeper into a more um, um, philosophical meaning as a faculty of the soul. And he mentions the Sacred Heart, and I was wondering if you were familiar with that book and you... Um, had any thoughts about this uh, type of proposition that he laid out? Okay, well, I'm not familiar with the book. I am somewhat familiar with Hildebrand. Uh, he's not a Thomist, and I don't believe he likes Greek philosophy all that much. However, he's a very intelligent and devout Catholic, and he tended to use my, I believe, uh, um, I hope Alice will curse me from the grave, but uh, I believe a more phenomenological method. And so what I try to explain about the fact that the Hebrews, in Hebrew there isn't the word for soul exactly, but the word heart tends to 
express all the interiority is more or less, I believe, what von Hildebrand was after. Does that help, Mary? Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Gary in Billings, Montana, listening on Billings Catholic Radio. Gary, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. Oh, well, thanks for taking my call. My question is from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, uh, and this is not from you, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, lest no one should boast. So the, the this is and the it's in there, it's not real clear to me to what they refer. Does it refer to grace or faith or gift or all of the above? Again, I got most of the quote. What's the actual phrase you find difficult? Well, just... Uh, when he says it and this, it's not clear to me what he's referring back to, whether he's referring back to gift or grace or faith. Well, I believe he's referring back or to maybe. salvation, isn't he, to grace. And uh, okay. you don't merit, uh, the idea is that you don't merit grace through your works. But uh, part of the work of grace, you have to believe in it, first of all, to receive it. And... Um, all those things have God first. God comes first in everything. Now, we don't conceive it that way because often for us, forgiveness of sins precedes the gift of grace. From our standpoint in time, we look on the forgiveness of sins as first. But in metaphysics, there's a famous principle that uh, in time, the imperfect precedes the perfect. So the seed precedes the rose. But in eternity or in metaphysics, the perfect, which is the reason the imperfect exists, and its purpose precedes the imperfect. So the rose would precede the seed. Now, in the gift of grace, on time, the imperfect for us recedes the perfect. So first we you know, repent of our sins and then we receive grace, which itself, of course, is always by divine uh, movement. We correspond to God's movement. But in eternity, or better, better to say in metaphysics, the perfect precedes the imperfect. So the perfect in this case is the reception of grace, which then causes forgiveness of sins. And faith is the necessary means by which we open ourselves to receiving grace, but God is always there in every step of the process and controlling every step of the process. So there's no sense in which we, by our works, merit grace. And of course, he was talking about the works of the Old Testament. However, once we receive grace, then we spontaneously apply it to our own works and in this case, we merit the final perfections experience, which would be heaven. So normally people don't merit grace, but they do, through grace, in faith, merit heaven by their works. And the primary works, of course, are the sacraments, 
but also the works of charity, which we do. So it depends on the point of view you look at it from, but God is always first, no matter what, and that's what St. Paul has emphasized. So just because the Jews or the Ephesians are um, in the epistle of the Ephesians, at one point he talks about the disciples of John who haven't yet heard about the Holy Spirit. Um, even though they know about that part, they don't know about the part that the Holy Spirit's action is absolutely necessary in that, which he wishes, in which he wishes to instruct them. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Vicki called. She couldn't stay on the line, but she was a first-time caller in Sandy, or in South Dakota. Excuse me. And uh, her question is, this is a rubber-meets-the-road question right here, Father. When does the one-hour communion fast begin? Or the reception of communion, not the beginning of Mass. So it would begin an hour before the reception of communion. It's, a, it's just a token, really, now. You, yeah, that's you not recall much of a fast. The, <laughs> I know. I mean, you recall, recall the original communion fast was from midnight on, and then about 1962, they reduced it to three hours, and then it got reduced to an hour. But it's from the t- moment of the reception of communion that you calculate backwards. Uh, Aaron sent us an email. He wants to know, St. Thomas Aquinas says that everything has a proper place. Does this leave any room for things acting outside of their nature? Well, of course it does, because there are things, especially things that have will, that act outside their nature. It's called evil. (laughs) (laughs) It's called sin. Uh, the, The whole purpose of determining what the proper place is, is to determine when the nature isn't acting according to it. And that really wouldn't just be true of will. I mean, it's true of our physical well-being, too. So how do you determine illness, especially an illness that might lead to death? Well, that's when your body is acting in a way outside of its proper place in nature or isn't acting according to its proper place in nature, uh, which can be corrected using principles from nature, which we call medicine. Remember, medicine can't act in a body that has no natural abilities to heal. It just doesn't, can't heal itself totally by on its own without aid. So that's why they say art imitates nature. And they don't just mean the fine arts, like painting. What they're referring to are practical arts like healing, for example, in medicine. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. We are giving you unfettered access to a living, breathing Dominican priest. Uh, If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And if you are outside of the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. 
That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Come and put Thursday or Father Milady in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate location. And we've got plenty of time for your phone calls on this Thursday edition of EWTN's Open Line. The number's again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Andrea in uh, the great state of Iowa listening on KMMK Radio. Andrea, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Okay, thank you. Um, um, During rough times, I tend to... Um, comfort myself thinking about the Blessed Mother. It always gives me comfort. And um, I started wondering one day how in the world the woman who is gentleness itself, so ge- immeasurably gentle, could defeat Satan, who is the opposite, and have him put his head under her foot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the only way you have to defeat Satan is to love the truth. It's not a he's the one that tries in power to uh, force you into things. Loving the truth is merely the way you defeat him. So the the pure goodness of a human being, knowing they're loved by God and resting in that, is enough. Um, it was Adam and Eve who tried to manipulate power. Uh, you know, in Ephesians, uh, you know, in Philippians, it says he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but instead emptied himself, speaking of Christ. Well, who grasped at being divine? We're supposed to be divine, but not by grasping, by taking, by giving, by open hands. And so Adam and Eve were the first two people who grasped at being divine by their own power, by not attending to God. So in Mary's case, as Jesus says, you have someone who hears the word of God and keeps it. That's all that's necessary. Um, and, you know, and there's an Aesop fable, which someone expresses this. Uh, the wind and the sun had an argument about who was more powerful. So there was a man walking along wearing a coat and they decided to test their powers and they bet that the, the well, each one of them could get the man to take his coat off. So the wind went first, and he howled and howled and howled, and there was this terrible, terrible, terrible hurricane-like force wind. Well, all it made the man do was clutch the closer, closer to himself. When the sun took his turn, he just shone, and the man became hot, so he took off his coat. And the whole purpose of the Aesop fable was to demonstrate that it's not the strength of force that convinces people or that uh, leads to true power, but it's rather gentleness. So you, you hit it right on the nail, said. And I, I have to say that I don't know if you or know this, but one of my favorite titles of the Blessed Virgin comes in the Middle Ages, and she was called the Hammer of Heretics. 
Now, she was a hammer, not because she was hitting them and things like that, but because she just rejoiced in the truth and didn't allow herself to be moved away from the truth, no matter how much people tried to force her to. So take comfort in Our Lady. Our Lady will always help you if you ask her to, because she is Christ's mother. How's that, Andrea? Oh, thank you. That was wonderful. (laughs) I love these (laughs) upstables. All right. God bless, Andrea. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Craig is in the great state of Nebraska listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Craig, you're on with Father Brian. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Father, can you tell me how long... uh, we should wait, and when the Protestants snicker when we don't eat meat on Friday during Lent, and I stumble, I should know, because I was born at the end of World War II, and I should know this answer. I'm embarrassed to ask you, but I'm going to ask you. Uh, and then I've got one more question. Thank you. Uh, wait for what? Uh, wait for your answer, then. Get no, no, I mean, how long do the Protestants wait? Wait, what are they waiting for? Well, no, he's, he's asking well, how, how he answers the question: Why do we abstain from meat on Friday? Oh, it's it's a simple sign of our um, recognition of the passion, penance for the passion. And as you know now, it's more or less optional, except during Lent. Uh, you're supposed to do some sort of penance if you don't abstain from meat, but. Uh, Lent is the time when it's most important, and of course that's the time when we recognize our need to repent from sin. So it's a symbol of our repentance. And you had another question, Craig? Uh, yes, I do, quickly. Uh, how long did uh, Peter stay in Antioch before he went back to Rome, after, the, uh, after he left Rome and when he went to Antioch? I really don't know. Is there some indication in the Acts of the Apostles? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never been clear about it, and that's why I wondered. Well, I don't. Whatever is not not in the Acts of the Apostles, we don't know. It's got to be in the Scripture somewhere. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Craig. We appreciate that phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Regina is in Alexandria, Virginia, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Regina, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello. Uh, can you be well? We can, just fine. Uh, excellent. Okay. So my question is, um, I, I'm obviously a, a not a very good Catholic, but a devout Catholic. But I want to know why, if God is all-knowing, and all-loving, would he create someone knowing they will go to hell? And I know there's something to do with free will and everything, but is there like a certain number of people that need to end up in hell or something? Because it's a, it's a difficult conundrum. Uh, well, it's not really difficult because God created us and he didn't want slaves, he wanted free people. And so he allows us the glory of participating in realizing our own destiny. Now, of course, in his divine knowledge, 
he knows there are some people that will not avail themselves of this. But it's not his, he doesn't positively will them not to do that. And as of the number, well, the elect, as you know, according to the book of Revelation, 144,000, but that's an ideal number. It's an it's a ancient way of explaining things using numbers. And what since it's 12 times 12, et cetera, 1,000, it basically says the perfect number that God has willed for the realization of the world. When that ends, in other words, when those people have gone to heaven, then the whole reason for the existence of heaven and earth ends. Because remember the catechism, why did God make me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven? When the number of the elect is filled up, God has, has demonstrated his goodness. After all, those people didn't exist. They wouldn't be able to go to heaven or participate in his goodness. And if he forced them to, they wouldn't be able to do that either. They'd be slaves. So what he wants is servants, sons, daughters, whatever you want to call them, who are going to experience intimacy of life. But because he creates those with freedom, he knows that some people will not avail themselves of that opportunity. And we see this in the first temptation in the book of Genesis, because Adam and Eve had all these wonderful gifts, and yet they were tempted to make the one little decision they were forbidden to make to show that they were gifts from God, not for themselves, so that they could become God without God's aid, though. So they, again, if they grasped it being God. So um, none of us would be able to enjoy the goodness of God. And God created a world which all forces to be good. Thanks, Regina. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. Still some time left for your calls at 833-288-3986. Jacob is in the great state of Minnesota, a first-time caller listening on Real Presence Radio. Jacob, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Awesome. Hi, Father. Uh, my question is, uh, is it okay to attend an SSPX Mass uh, on occasion just for the sake of going to the Extraordinary Forum? Well, I, I would say that, that such a Mass is considered to be valid if illicit. And I wouldn't not, would not want to encourage a person to be illicit. Uh, the extraordinary form has its own beauty, but that's preserved by the priest of eternity of St. Peter. And the church has made provision. Some places, other places have extraordinary form now too. And a person should uh, research that and go there and not go to a church where, uh, I, I can't remember what the final judgment has been about it, but I know the bishops were considered schismatic when they ordained other bishops without permission. Ordinary faithful, not so much so. But I remember there was a group that wanted to go to an ordination in a comb when the archbishop was still alive. And they asked the cardinal in Rome, and he said, well, go, just don't encourage others to go. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, the thing is that when you go there, you pretty much say that everything they're doing is correct. And 
I have had a lot of questions about the SSPX, not because of the extraordinary form, but because of their attitude toward the unity of the church. And uh, I don't know, I consider it a form of neo-Gallicanism. So it's valid uh, as far as I know, but it would be slightly illicit and you certainly wouldn't want your Eucharistic experience to be in something that's illicit when you can do something where it's not. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Henry writes in, what is liberation theology and why is it not Catholic? All right, well, liberation theology. Liberation theology is a German form of theology that was transported to places in the third world according to their cultural experience, and it was given a Marxist tinge. Liberation theology's origin is a student of Rahner's named Johannes Metz, who wrote a book called Theology of the World, in which he maintained that God had accepted the world in Christ, so the world was just as holy as anything else. This was reflected in a post-Vatican II series of uh, volumes of their teaching, which was called Sacramentum Mundi. You can find it in your library. Sacrament of the world. Now, I've never read the world as a sacrament until then. And the and sad thing is that it has a tendency to deny the distinction between God and creation, and therefore between the church and the state, and therefore between grace and nature, so much so that the kind of base communities that sought to implement it in Latin America in the 70s, uh, which were leading armed revolution and things like that, remember they considered the hierarchy to be their enemies. So they were the elect. The hierarchical church was the enemy because it was somehow allied with the establishment. Well, it may be the case that the church was too allied with powerful figures, especially dictators, but not a, that's not in itself a reason for a person to adopt a Marxist view. And what's interesting is, as you know, that some of their great heroes have now shown themselves to be just as tyrannical as the people they replaced. So the problem is it's a... European aberration in theology, especially German theology, that was transferred into another cultural context, especially a Latin American context. And it even reached the point where during the famous Sandinista revolt, um, and again, whatever you think about that's your business, but they actually painted on the walls, blessed is the womb that bore the Sandinista revolutionary. You know, as far as I know, the only context in which that quote is used in the scripture concerns Christ, where they say, "Blessed the Mary, blessed is the womb, etc. Now, um, I, I think we need to realize that it's not a Christian way of viewing our church. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass right here from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel uh, every day, with the exception of Good Friday, at 8 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Uh, Dan is in El Centro, California, listening on John Paul II Radio. Dan, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Yes, yes. What a beautiful, beautiful day to talk. I was wondering, is was actually Moses really a heliocentricist? You mean, uh, did Moses believe that the earth, uh, the sun was the center of the universe? And, actually, uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. well, I mean, uh, probably, but that was ancient cosmology. And uh, Moses wasn't, as you know, there to teach us science. He was there to teach us about God. So they they would have certainly had another opinion had they had scientific instruments like telescopes and things like that, which they didn't possess. Uh, just kind of naturally speaking, though, it's a kind of natural mistake to think that it's the sun that moves and not the earth, because that's the way we perceive it from our perspective. Um, Stephen writes in, how can I explain to a Protestant the benefits of a funeral mass for the deceased? Oh, well, that's really easy. (laughs) In fact, I'll refer you to a wonderful line in a series that was made in the late 60s by the BBC on the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Uh, Jane Seymour was Henry's third wife. She died giving birth to the long-for heir, Edward VI. He loved her the most of all of his wives because she was the only one he called for on his deathbed. And uh, she was, she, she had submitted to the king's judgment basically concerning religion but she was very Catholic in sympathy. And there were things that she did not like, and so since she was the queen, she'd argue with Henry about them, which of course used to infuriate him. So one of the things she said was, I don't understand why your church has limited masses for the dead to one. Now, of course, they eventually did away with it altogether. It seems a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead and a very Christian thing. Well, he basically tells her she's a woman and knows nothing, so not to even attempt to debate theology. When she died giving birth to the long-for heir, in this dramatization anyway, but it does correspond to historical fact, Henry looked at Cromwell, who was the one, you know, prosecuting the uh, Reformation in England, and he said to him, her last request which I suppose we should must honor, is that a thousand masses be said for the repose of her soul. So you can see this Catholic uh, value system that reflects, first of all, the famous Maccabees situation in which, remember, the people killed in the battle with with the Gentiles they discovered had pagan god amulets under them. And Joseph had, uh, Judas Maccabeus had a sacrifice offered for them to atone for this sin. So it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. 
and it is a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead, is one of the things Judas says, and it's also one of the things that Catholic theology has embraced as particularly a pious thought, but not just that. I mean, it's the best way to relate to your departed. Uh, Bill is in Moorhead, Minnesota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Bill, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Uh Hi, Father. I wanted to ask you a question. I, I attend a, a, a more traditional um, adoration service where, 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 we, where we begin it when the, the host is placed in the mantras and then exposed. Then we sing, we sing, O Solotaris Hostia. And one of the, one of the, the expressions in there is sensum defectui. And I, yes. I'd like your, your your perspective on that. Exactly what what does what is the author, what is St. Thomas saying when he when he says sensum oh, well, defectui? Well, he's reflecting authentic Eucharistic theology. It's the true body and blood of Christ. It's the true saving sacrifice, which is what solitarium hostia means. But you can't experience that with your five senses. With your five senses, it just uh, tastes like bread, looks like bread, my molecular structure of bread. It's like the Gerard Manley Hopkins translation of Adorote Devote, another hymn by St. Thomas. Seeing, touching, tasting are in the received houses, holy hearing, that shall be believed. So the idea is that even though we don't perceive the reality of Jesus' body, with our five senses, uh, it is Jesus's real body as exists in heaven. But on earth, the so-called accidents, which are the um, properties, remain those to be a bread. Now I know some pious Catholics find this difficult to understand. In fact, one of them told me one time, well, uh, you know, um, be, because it's the blood of Christ, Certainly, if you drank four chalices of it, consecrated at the end of Mass on Sunday morning, you wouldn't get inebriated. God would protect you from that. And I said, well, that's a nice, pious thought, but that's not been my experience. <laughs> because occasionally we'll consecrate a lot of the precious blood, too much of it. And I remember I've had to consume two or three full chalices before the end of Mass, and I could barely walk up to the pulpit after it was over. <laughs> And I tell the lady, I'm not drunk and inebriated, but let's just say the, too much of the precious blood physically can still cause you physical symptoms. <laughs> so. God bless you, Bill. Thanks so much for the phone call. Uh, Randall writes in, what if someone was on their way to confess a mortal sin and was killed in a car accident? Would their desire to confess mean anything? Yes, it would. Uh, because they intended to confess, they just didn't get there. Yeah. So it's probably so remember, kind of in the same family as the baptism of desire. Uh, yes, yes, I would say so. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, it's just an accidental um, happening that you're not able to say your confession because you intended and you were contrite. And had you been able to say it, you certainly would have said it. And finally, Jerry wants to know, how do I know that God exists and how do I know what he wants? <laughs> well, I mean, 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, I don't know how to tell you how you know that God exists. First of all, no one's natural an atheist. They have to be convinced to be that because the very grandeur of the world that we exist in should impress you with wonder. And that wonder can only be finally explained with an ordering mind. Now, that doesn't say that absolutely everything in the universe is perfectly ordered, but it's ordered enough that there must be some uh, designing mind behind it. And what he wants of us, well, first of all, he wants us to be go to heaven. Second, he wants us to be saved in order to do that. And thirdly, he basically wants us to love people in our ordinary context, because that's how we, we get to heaven. Emily wants to know if it's efficacious to pray for her atheist brother. Does it do anything? The teaching in the church is that prayers are never wasted. So even if your brother is deceased, for example, and you can't change his mind, God will apply the fruit of your prayers to someone else, uh, for example, to get through purgatory properly. Or if your brother's still here on earth and doesn't uh, convert, that God, again, will not allow those prayers to be in vain, but will apply them to someone who does have the desire to convert. So prayers are never wasted, never. Even if they don't affect what you want them to, hopefully they would in this case, but because you love your brother and you want him to go to heaven, but even if they don't, they're never wasted. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're back at it again tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern Time here on EWTN Radio with EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin, God bless. Thank you.